Hello and welcome to episode 56 of A Positive Podcast. If you would like to sponsor an episode in honor of a loved one or celebrate an upcoming special occasion or just because you appreciate what we're doing here, please reach out on my website, apositivecoach.com or you can email me at riesel at jewishpeabody.com. In addition, if you're curious to hear more about positive psychology-based life coaching and to see if it's a fit for you, you can reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com to set up your free consultation today. In addition, if you could take a moment and leave a rating and review on our podcast, we would be so appreciative as it helps others be able to find the podcast easier. It only takes a minute and it's very effective. Leave a comment, a review. We are very, very grateful. So let's get into today's episode, episode 56, which is titled Navigating Residential Treatment Programs, Insights from Devorah Shabtai. A little about Devorah Shabtai. Devorah is a LCSW who she, she currently serves as a vice president of clinical development at Onward Living, which is an addiction rehabilitation program for Jewish men in Boca Raton, Florida. And Devorah specializes in the treatment of addiction and spiritual religious trauma, as well as clinical program design that is tailored to meet the clinical and cultural needs of members of the Orthodox Jewish community within both inpatient and outpatient levels of care. Alongside her clinical work, Devorah has a background in evidence-based research and her current doctoral research is examining spiritual, religious identity development and its relationship to mental health. Devorah is a mentor of mine and someone who helps many, many people gain clarity and direction and a way forward for their loved ones who are struggling with mental health and or addiction. And in this episode, I sit down with Devorah and we dwell, delve into the world of residential treatment programs. Devorah shares what these programs entail. She dispels common misconceptions she talks about the goals and the dynamics of these programs, and she offers valuable insight for individuals and families who are seeking effective rehabilitation solutions. We discuss the objective of residential treatment, and she talks about understanding the importance of the role of family members and loved ones for their family members that might be in residential treatment. And moreover, Devorah shares crucial factors to consider when you're dealing with residential treatment programs or looking for the correct program. And she helps, I think, everyone who's listening kind of be more equipped with knowledge to make a better informed decision. Hopefully no one needs this information, but if you might, it's always good to have more information and more knowledge. So whether you're seeking help for yourself or for a loved one or a family member, this episode will provide a comprehensive overview of this landscape and will help you navigate the path to healing with clarity and confidence. So I really appreciate Devorah's um, willingness to come on and talk and share her knowledge with all of us. And I think that you will find this to be interesting too. So sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. Okay, welcome to another episode of Positive Podcast. Today, I have the distinct honor and privilege of having Devorah Shabtai. And um, it's been a long time in coming, so I'm very excited that we are here and finally making this happen. First of all, thank you, Devorah, and welcome. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. It's so good to finally be having this conversation that we've been uh, talking about for a long time. Yeah, um, so Devorah, just to give a little bit of context, I met her a few years ago. 
and we've become WhatsApp friends. <laughs> and um, Baruch Hashem, she's you know helped a lot of people. She helped me personally. She's helped a lot of people, and she's my one of my mentors when it comes to dealing with um, children or teens that may be struggling, specifically um, within the you know context of of um, treatment and how to figure out treatment and what is the right approach to treatment. And there's so many questions that I have about this topic because um, I'm inundated my husband and myself with people that reach out and um, have questions about this topic. They want to know, you know, when is it the right time for somebody to get treatment? What, what does that look like? What is the process? Um, and since you've been doing this for so many years and you have so much insight on this topic, um, I really want to go into, into that question. So I'm going to start off with the first question that comes to my mind. The first question that I have is I have seen both sides of this conversation where a parent may have a child that's struggling and um, you know, they may be not necessarily only with addiction, they can have a mental health struggle and it could be pretty severe. And then there's parents that want this child to get the help that they need. So they may start looking for a residential kind of program or they may have had hospitalization and then they need to find a residential program. And um, the feeling that I have, come to over the years is, and I want, I'm curious for your um, take on this is that I feel like the best place for a child. And when I say a child, I, I'm even talking about a 16, 17, for sure, 14, for sure, 15, but even 18 year olds, that the best place for them to be is at home, getting the support with the right therapist, the right, maybe the right um, program that's IOP and maybe like a daily program that they're doing, but they're still at home where they get that support. Because I have seen some of these programs, they can be like a secondary trauma for people. So can you speak to that a little bit and, and tell us a little bit about when and where it's that is treatment really appropriate? Absolutely. And there's so much there's so many layers to that question. Um, and so I'm just going to kind of speak, uh, speak from the heart here. I think that to really understand when a person needs to be at home versus when they need to be taken away in a controlled environment, in a cocoon, so to speak, um, really speaks to the question of what is residential treatment? And I think let's dive in. I think that's really the biggest question that I'm always asked is, like I hear this thing called rehab. Is this like some magical place that if I send my loved one to, you know, there's going to be some like car wash phenomenon. They're going to go, they're going to come back and everything's going to be okay. And I think there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of false hope about what it, what that, what that whole space in time really is. And so to answer that question, I want to just share a little bit about from my experience, you know, working in the trenches inside of a residential program, what really, what really happens there. And therefore we can plug that into where on that person's timeline, you know, that continuum of that treatment period, um, you know, what that, what that function is of, of that, uh, of that level. Um, I, I think that ultimately a person needs to be immersed in their in their life. But what happens when the place that's around them is that place that's causing that trigger? You know, when that that dysregulation, that volatility um, just keeps being poked again and again and again. Maybe it's because the issues are happening at home. 
Maybe it's because the person is so dysregulated from a mental health perspective. Maybe they've fallen into addiction um, and they're really in the clutches of it. And so being in that same environment and just going to a really skilled therapist once or twice a week, that's not going to do it. I always think of it as like having a cup, you know, with holes in it. And even if you pour really good interventions, let's say we find the world's best, you know, trauma therapist for someone who's experiencing trauma, but if they're in an environment where they are not going to be able to be receptive to the intervention, then what we need to do is for a period of time, take them out of that zone. We need to put them into an immersive experience, a controlled environment where we take away all that confounding variables that may be happening in the environment, in the community, in that person's family, even within that person themselves, right? If I am so used to being conditioned into a process of addiction, if I uh, my mental health is so dysregulated. I actually have to change. And we call it, you know, in, in AA literature, you know, that the geographic, um, you know, cure sometimes, um, and for sometimes that's the negative, right? People have this kind of illusion that if I just move, um, but sometimes there's really something to say, even neuro, you know, neurobiologically to moving away from where I am. So the first step is a residential program is there just to put you, drop you into a therapeutic space where all the other things around you that were adding fuel to the fire get taken away. So that's number one. Even before we talk about what actually happens in a residential program, the fact that I'm removing myself for a temporary period of time, um, and I do liken it when I speak to parents to a Shana Aleph experience versus having a really good Chavrusa once a week, because there is a time and place where even when you're building yourself up spiritually, if you're in, you're immersed in it, that becomes what you are psychologically and emotionally and physiologically um, surrounded by. So I think it's we don't look at residential as one or the other with a home. It's do I need a period of time to step yeah. away? Right. The Positive Podcast is brought to you by OKClarity.com. OKClarity is the place for any Jew, no matter how religious you are, to find an excellent therapist, psychiatrist, coach, or nutritionist. And it's completely free for you to use. OKClarity.com's professionals are vetted, and they have extensive experience working with the Jewish community. Yes, you can even find me there, because I'm listed as a coach. If you're in the market for a therapist, a coach, a nutritionist, a psychiatrist, or the like, you want to check them out. If you don't find what you're looking for, they have a concierge service where you complete a short form and they will personally match you with someone. Just an important side note, if you are a wellness professional, I highly recommend joining their directory. Their team is amazing and I've received referrals from their platform and OK Clarity has an amazing WhatsApp status with over 8,000 obsessed followers. And yes, I am one of them. Their WhatsApp is a free way to improve your mental health and they post great humor, so you'll laugh too. If you have WhatsApp, shoot them a message at 917-426-1495. Again, that's 917-426-1495. We'll put the links to their website and their WhatsApp in the show notes so you can find those links and go ahead, smash those links. You will not regret it. And now back to our show. Well, do you think that there's ever a time for a 14, 15, 16 year old that needs to be removed from that environment in the home. And I'm not talking about, well, yeah, in, in, in regard to if the home environment is toxic and if the home environment is, is what's causing the, the, the issues, then maybe in those situations. But even if you don't get along with your parents or even if your parents trigger you is not necessarily a reason I mean, maybe I'm, I'm just kind of giving my opinion here when I should be asking. Okay, so let me ask that 
better than giving my opinion. What are your thoughts on that? Your opinions are, are very important. Um, I, I think again, and I, I love this question because it speaks to like, again, what what is happening in this residential program that is going to warrant and justify a 14-year-old to interrupt their entire life to put it, you know, upside down. Um, because when we look at a 22-year-old who let's say is not even working, it's like, what's the difference between being in my parents' basement um and being in a residential program? But when you when you link it to a 14-year-old, now we're getting to the core of what does it take for me to justify pulling my loved one out of the the norm? And I think the answer is when that person is out of the norm. When that person is not able to function within the, the natural setting of that person's stage of development. So if I'm a 14-year-old and I'm supposed to be in high school, yes, there has to be something so significantly interruptive that would warrant the fact that we can even have that conversation. Um, I think that if we look at residential, though, as a excuse to unburden the family. And so for anyone listening, I'm not here to assign, you know, blame for this at all. But something I do see is that parents will think this is so difficult for me to manage. This child is causing disruption in the home. The other siblings are deeply being impacted. I just don't know what to do. I don't have the energy anymore. So there's this thing called residential that I'm reading about and I'm seeing ads in Mishpacha and I'm hearing my friends have gone to residential. So let me check that out because then maybe I could just get that person in a way that's safe, but not in my hair. I can relate to um, that. I think that's that's that that when you're dealing with a really challenging situation with a child who has mental health challenges, I, I'm not. I, I hear what you're saying, and I don't even have judgment. I I, I totally understand that. Like I understand and I don't that. either. I don't either have judgment because when I'm speaking to a mother or a father um, or a spouse, it's like the the that fight or flight of that. I just need to help this person, and I don't know what to do. And I I'm not. Like I, I didn't come into this world, you know, knowing what to do with, with this, but this is my child. Um, it, it's really quite heartbreaking. But what I really do like to educate people on is that residential treatment is only there to start off the trajectory for the next step. I actually always tell people, if you only have a certain amount of money, do not spend it on residential. Because what happens in residential is really just to, to slow down the cycle of what's happening. Active addiction slow it down through detoxing, through getting the, the triggers and the drugs or the alcohol or the behavior really under control. A manic, a manic state, suicidality, depression that the person is not functioning, anxiety that is taking over control. What a residential program, if I could distill it into a couple sentences, is there to do is to slow down the cycle from, from getting more and more and more escalated and actively evaluating what's going on putting it into the category of what it is. Is this a mental health issue that needs a medication management? Is this an addiction, addictive process that needs the typical addiction intervention? Um, is this something that has been born from trauma? And so I first need to kind of have the person in an environment where they can trust, right? Because all trauma-based disorders, um, I know I'm, I'm generalizing, but really come down to the fact that the person is now not able to trust the world. And so what happens when I'm constantly in an overwhelming place? So if you put a person in any of those categories into a controlled environment, we could just breathe for a minute. We could just look at what's actually going on and we can say, hey, this person is safe. 
any good residential program is going to monitor them in a certain a certain level. They're going to be going to group therapy and individual therapy. They're going to be meeting with a psychiatric provider and doing a psychiatric evaluation. Um, so even if the modality is not right, and I think a lot of people get hung up, and I've spoken about this um, a little, little bit on my, my soapbox here, um, that I do not believe at a residential level of care, it really matters if you're starting any specific modality. And so for all parents listening, you look at the website, I want you to drop the care of what type of modalities are happening. That is all marketing. I'm probably going to get pushback on that, but I believe that it's 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 well-intentioned marketing. In this. Are you saying, let me see if I'm understanding correctly. Are you saying that when a parent looks at a program and says, oh, they have somatic and I've heard all about somatic, so this must be a good program? Is that what you're saying? People are basing where they go for residential on the on the modalities that are being offered at this treatment center? Yes. What I'm saying is if your loved one is in the throes of the chaos and we don't know what is going on with them and they have not yet been recommended for a specific modality based upon a highly clinically competent evaluation that may have even happened in a residential program, then it doesn't matter what the actual modality is. Because if mm -hmm. what, what is needed is I need a place to slow my child down so that that person, so my child is safe so that they're getting comprehensively evaluated and assessed to know, is this something going on, you know, in which domain? And usually it's complex. I, I want to also make sure that I don't make it sound like there's these like different tracks and different boxes that we could just drop one in. Because even if someone is experiencing a manic episode, there's oftentimes so many other pieces there that also need to be intervened upon before the person is has a hope of success. But it is important to kind of play what I call clinical chess where we do have to have that in a controlled environment so I can begin to look at which pieces need to be put into the treatment plan. But in the first 30 days, it is highly, highly unlikely that that treatment plan is going to start. We need a period of regulation to happen. Safety, huge, especially if someone's coming in with any trauma background. So it takes often, from what I've seen, about two weeks to just have the person trust the staff. If someone is coming in with a personality disorder or trauma-based issue, the first two weeks are often spent with them testing. They will tell their parents all the reasons why it's a horrible program. They will say, this therapist hates me. That person hates me. This They don't understand me. They're relationally experiencing in real time everything that they've experienced up until this point using the treatment center as a, as a stage, as a sound set, um, a sound stage movie set. Um, you know, to really play out those patterns. And a good program will allow that and look at that clinically and say, I'm understanding this person because he just cursed out his therapist in a group and he doesn't feel safe here and he's calling his parents to leave because of something that his peer said. Now I understand what's going on with that person. I'm not going to jump to intervene. If a program says, okay, this person has trauma, we're going to do EMDR week one, not good. Hmm. If after I have meaningfully assessed my client. I have seen through a period of behavioral analysis and clinical analysis and psychiatric evaluation um, that a person is recommended for EMDR. That has to happen in the next stage. And so I think that one thing we need to take a look at is that good treatment is a long period of care. It is a stage. I often tell people to think about what aftercare looks like from day one. Mm. It's very hard to do that when you're in the throes of a fight or flight response. And all you want to make sure is that your child is going to be alive for the next day. But if you're spending your money and 
Most families have limited amounts of money, if not don't have money for treatment. Do not be sold on quick fixes because you heard the word somatic, EMDR, IFS, you know, all of these things. That That's not what happens in the first phase. So to go back to your question of how do I know when a person needs to be removed from the house, so to speak, um, it's really when something has to be slowed down, we have to get a picture of what's going on. And sometimes the best place to do that, whether it's a 14-year-old or a 40-year-old, is to come away from the home. But it's the first stage in a longer process. Okay, that makes sense. And 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 to answer the other question about the younger age, would you do you want to comment on that part? Like with, with yeah, I, mean, I think it's all it's all the same thing. Depending, you know, and we just change, we just kind of can, um, you know, put in the different ages, the different the different presenting issues. I think that if a person is needs to be given a certain therapeutic intervention so that for the long haul, that person can be put back into the norm, whatever that person's norm is. And for many, many, many people who are 14, um, there is something going on in a very critical way that probably hits a developmental psychiatric, you know, again, or of course, family systems, trauma-oriented, um, you know, angle. And so if at that point they are exhibiting signs of disruption, volatility, um, you know, behaviors that are getting them kicked out of yeshivas or already on the track to, you know, something really dangerous and risky, it is important to interrupt the cycle. Many people who I speak to who have uh, adolescents, this is not their first rodeo. They have tried um, outpatient therapy. They've tried to work with the guidance counselors in the yeshiva. They have advocated until they were blue in the face to keep the person at home. Um, but I think that if if we don't intervene when we need to, the person is going to be in a cycle of going in and out of treatment, in and out of treatments for some, you know, Khalila getting in trouble with the law. Uh, we do want to interrupt that. And like I said, if we properly plug in our understanding of residential, it's not a substitution for living at home. We're not talking about, you know, a therapeutic um, school that can go on for years. If we're talking right. about a residential program, it has a very short window of time. And then if you set this up right and they can go back into outpatient and they can go back into their homes, that will then interrupt the cycle um, in best case scenario. If we're looking at it as I'm just frazzled as a mom, I want to just get my kid out of the house so that he can be taken care of, but not in my Dalit Amos where I'm affecting my other siblings. I think that what happens is um, a person does not meaningfully choose the right program. They don't use the program in the right way. They're trying to rush the treatment or they're trying to prolong the treatment. And I do get calls from parents who are afraid for their child to come back home and they try to advocate for them to go to another residential setting afterwards. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's very, very important to understand what residential treatment is and it isn't, what it is there to do and what it's not there to do. It's not there to provide the long-term therapeutic work. It's there to slow things down, get that person out of whatever dysfunctional situation is happening that is chaotic, make a really good roadmap for the future and get that person right back into their environment as soon as they can. And that's why aftercare okay. is critical. So it doesn't matter if you're 14 year old. I like or that. 80. If that's, yeah, if you that's need helpful. that helpful. So, of... so tell me if I'm hearing correctly, if, if I was looking into a program, because I, you know, I'm just curious, I, I've heard this about certain programs that are open-ended and they're just, you know, teen programs that help, you know, like it, 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 it feels more like, they are marketing to the parents that are exhausted from their from their struggling team. Because what I'm hearing is there's no timeline. There's no like, well, we don't know when he's gonna be ready to go or she's ready to go because we, we have to really ascertain where they're at. And it feels like they're just trying to keep the client 
paying these exorbitant amount of money and it doesn't feel like it's a long, like to me, what you said with regard to that, there should be a short amount of period of time that you know, ahead of time that you're coming in to get, figure out what's going on, give you um, uh, an assessment of what is going on and then give you a roadmap. Sounds like that could be a proper thing for a struggling team. But if it's an open-ended program, that's just there to kind of babysit quote your child so that you can have a break, that might be right there as a red flag. 100%. And I will tell everyone something that I have unfortunately um, seen the hard way, which is the treatment industry um, is an industry. It is a business. Um, in the most well-meaning of people, you know, the, the programs are often designed for retention. They're designed to create extensions. They are designed to not um, actively want relapse, but to expect that there's relapse. And that's why you won't see good data and outcome research um, and success rates. Um, and I don't think that that's anyone's fault. I think that the whole concept of treatment, you know, um, really, if you kind of look at the history of it, you know, was born from the fact that people were doing substances and that they needed to come out of the home to interrupt that because they do need to detox, right? And so this whole this whole phenomenon of mental health and trauma now having similar packaging, um, but really mental health and trauma are lifelong struggles. And so again, it's very unrealistic to think that a program in 30 days or 60 days is going to do much. I do think the adolescent programs um, oftentimes are trying to mix together what a residential program is there to do and a therapeutic boarding school. And yes, there are some teens that do need to be in a, you know, out of society. Um, you know, I, I'm not an adolescent specialist uh, by any Oh, you know, stretch, you know, but if people are starting to exhibit signs, you know, of certain types of disorders where they really should not be in uh, in society um, and they do need kind of more comprehensive, longer term care because there's something, let's say, developmental going on. Um, I, I do think that that has to be assessed case by case. And I'm not here to say there are not certain people who would benefit from long term. But I think that parents, my main message of this is that parents need to be properly educated on all levels of care. Um, I know there's a lot of acronyms, you know, we were just joking before, you know, there's the residential PHP, IOP, OP. I think that parents get so overwhelmed and inundated by information. They just try to find someone that they could ask and trust and then quickly make decisions. And I know, you know, Rachel, one thing you and I have talked a lot about is the importance of um, being guided by people you know, in the right way. And I think because there's so much of this misinformation, when you hear something that sounds like it's going to help with my exhaustion, my, my mental exhaustion, such as I look on a website and there's a program I can send my child to, and I'm just going to call someone. And if they give me the green light, um, I'm going to send my child. I think that that's a mistake and has led many to burning out their money, their resources, their child's motivation. There's a critical period by which a person is motivated for treatment. And if they go and it's not the right fit, um, we have not, not only exhausted our money, but we've exhausted our, our, our willingness and our readiness. Um, and so I know I'm collapsing a lot of different topics here because I think these are such complex topics, but I guess, you know, whether it's the, the concept of an adolescent going to a long period of program, whether it's an adult going to a, a program that just sounds like it's a good uh, program based on some interventions, I think the common denominator here is really being educated on what the programs are there to do. Um, and really knowing how to, to kind of be linked up with the right one and who to turn to and, and frankly, who not to turn to. I that's a really good point that you're making there. I think that in general, people just want somebody to tell them what to do. Like this is something that I think is a real issue for, for people in our community specifically, because on one hand, 
we've been raised to ask our Rav and our Mashpia and our mentors what we should be doing, how we should be doing things. And um, it's a big part of Das Taira. It's a big part of how we live our lives with regard to every area of our life, from cooking in our kitchen to our bedroom. Like all of this is things we discuss. So then it comes to these really important conversations around our children or our loved ones, and we are not sure how to navigate it. And all we want is somebody to tell us, do this, do that, and you'll be fine. And that doesn't exist. No one's going to tell us exactly what to do, and we're just going to follow it. Though it is very important to be guided by the right people. And I feel like that's an important piece that people do not have. I know even in my situation, in my, you know, Baruch Hashem, we had the right guidance, but till we found it, it's, it's really, it's like a whole new world, a conversation that I never knew of before. And all of a sudden you need to find the right people. And there are people that are misguided, but I think that there's a balance. Like I, I wonder sometimes about this whole need for guidance because on one hand, we need to ask, and on one hand, we need to have more. Um, we need to be trusting ourselves and our gut and our instincts more as well. So we need to get guidance because guidance is important and they can give us, you know, people can give us a, you know, reframe a new perspective, a new perspective on things. But at the same time, you know, finding the right guidance is really hard and there isn't a roadmap for that. Wow. I think that point you made right, of, of kind of, there is a unique variable in our community, and there are many unique variables in our community when it comes to treatment. I think for the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, I'm just going to side step for one second, and I'll get back to this point, where I think that our community is, on the one hand, really, really set up to do this right, right, to have this issue, to understand the issue, and to have the resources ready to go. I mean, when it comes time for chesed in every way, every shul, across the country has 10 different committees set up and everyone kind of understands this. And I think this, this, the community structure that we have is really beautiful and really um, almost like pre preparing the way for treatment to work even better. However, there are certain variables within our culture and in our community that are unintentionally sabotaging. Um, maybe that's a strong word, but unintentionally interrupting um, the treatment process. And I think that one of them is exactly what you just said. We are used to having these people to go to, to tell us what to do, um, and then to follow that. And the problem is that when we don't get that answer right away in that same way, I think this is causing a shop around effect. And I, unfortunately, um, when somebody calls me to ask about our treatment program or a treatment program, and they basically will quote to me the 10 people that they spoke to, um, and gave them very different opinions. And forgive me, but most of them are not clinicians. Um, I already know that this person is not necessarily going to be set up for success, and they likely will end up in the wrong program um, for them and keep the cycle going. Um, and, and I think that the reason that that happens is we, like you said, we're so desperate for a, for a definitive sock. And if I if I'm getting that sock, then I'm going to latch on to it from person. But most people who are who are helping in this space, and I think there are very well-meaning people who are, um, and many people have been have gotten help because there are so many people stationed in different communities that do know answers. But I think that we are going about it in a way that is is um is PSAC looking. And I think that that's the same thing. We look at a residential program and we assume that I'm going to go and it's going to fix things. I'm going to take this medicine and it's going to work. 
Um, and, and I think that we do have to reimagine this treatment process. We have to reimagine how we get guidance. We have to reimagine what I'm expecting um, out of treatment and, and kind of the timeline that I, that I give to it. And I think that one thing I do wanna suggest to parents um, is to try to get the type of help that doesn't just give you an answer about what treatment program to go to, but really guides you along the way um, and does some of that family system type of therapeutic work so that you can slow down that fight or flight adrenaline cortisol, you know, racing in your in your body so that you can't properly make the right decision. And it's it's something that is, um, you know, one of the most pain, painful conversations I've ever had about any topic or mothers who are in the throw of it calling and don't know what to do. You know, it's not something that a mother or a father or a spouse or a sibling or a friend or a rav really know because so many things that have problems have clear answers. If God forbid I'm diagnosed with cancer, there are answers, there is a path and this one is messy. Um, but I think we do have to drop some of our expectations. And I think that, you know, one thing um, really is to, to try not to speak to so many people, to try to trust, like you said, you know, I think the mother's gut is a big one, but I think connecting yourself to people who really do know what they're talking about in this in this space um, and trusting and leaning in and surrendering it, kind of modeling what your loved one is going to learn in treatment um, is a really, really important approach to, to take from the outset. Is there any kind of community, like we have a mud and we have relief, is there any specific map for people that may be struggling with finding a way forward? Like there are people that they can go to for guide guidance that you can actually speak to. Like, I know that you've recently started doing this on the side a little bit where you are, you know, cause you're getting inundated with phone calls. I know I send you about three people a week between my husband and myself to set up a time to kind of get some guidance from you. Um, but is there anyone else and why, and why is, if there isn't, why aren't we putting a little bit more emphasis in our community? We could, we could be guiding people to the right path instead of them having to shop around to 10 different people to ask their opinions because they heard, you know, Razel Shostman on a podcast. So I'm going to ask her opinion. And then I'm going to go and ask that person I heard on that, uh, that podcast and our meaningful people had this person. So I'm going to go speak to them. And there's this overload of information or misinformation sometimes, and it can be confusing. Yes, and it's certainly um, not for me to give, uh, you know, Haskamas to any specific people, but I, there, there are people absolutely out there who are specializing, you know, in this. And so what I will say kind of on a, on a macro level is if we drop the conception that there are these, like, golden magical answers out there. So that's why I'm searching, you know, through all these like, like objective external answers. And I'm going to call the people that are kind of put up on this pedestal, of like having the answers. I think if we drop this concept that there are answers the same way when we have a halakhic issue or a medical issue in, in a certain sense, even though a lot of these issues boil down to medical, um, you know, in the same category, if we drop that, I think we will stop the the wild goose chase of calling a million people of, mm. you know, just trying to find the perfect program, like which program is out there. I think that one thing as a really first step here um, is to realize this is very individual to my specific loved one. And so that's why I want to have people drop the buzzwords like again, addiction treatment, mental health treatment, like drop these things that feel like they're on the outside, um, this like magic, um, you know, bullet. And I think say, okay, my loved one is having a problem. I don't know what that problem is. So the first step is I'm going to like drown out the noise of things that worked for my friends because my friends are having a different problem. Maybe I can turn to my friends who's gone through this 
and ask for some recommendations for providers. But to find a provider, a mental health you know, professional, who then could help guide me as to what is going on with my loved one. And I think individualizing, and it's something that I've really, really seen, is many people will come and they will tell me the diagnosis that they have been given from someone who did not do a, an evaluation properly or fully. Uh, maybe it was someone in like the early years in a school setting who just was kind of speculating, you know, something. And they'll hold on to that and they'll assume that. And then when you redirect and you say, maybe that there is some other problem going on that you want to take a look at, and they'll do a neuropsych test or they'll they'll, they'll meet with a provider who does specialize in, in comprehensive evaluations. And we pivot to a different path. That's where I have seen Nisimina flows of, of, of success and progress, because I went from this mahalach or this way of thinking about my child, it wasn't working. And he went to that treatment center and he didn't really work. And he came back and he still relapsed because we didn't uncover what's going on. So I think to answer your question, there are people in the community, there are people all over the world who specialize in First of all, understanding what treatment is, which is important in education, um, guiding, you know, if somebody also needs that type of therapy so that they don't walk around um, racked with guilt and shame, that's also clouding their ability to make the right decision. So sometimes parents do need to be in therapy um, while this program, while this process is going on. But I think that really drowning out the noise, like kind of like if you watch an infomercial and you see like the best product, so let me all go to that one treatment center everyone's talking about or that one kind of recovery rehab consultant that I think, he, you know, he or she is going to have the answers. Um, mm. If you drop that and you say, what's going on with my loved one? And let me find, let me personalize it. Let me come away from the sensational sensationalization of treatment um, and just try to find out what's going on with my loved one and then pair him or her up with the right intervention um, again, utilizing a residential treatment that may be recommended um, once I know that that's recommended. And then I do want to find the best one um, out there for my loved one, but it's not the best one because of the reputation or because someone, you know, there's some fancy, uh, you know, thing associated with it. It's because that is what I, my child needs because I need to look at a developmental issue that he likely now has or a psychiatric one or trauma, right? So we have to really station what's going on with my loved one and find a provider um, clinically or medically that will be able to help me with that. So what I'm hearing you say is that part of this problem is, is the way our, the expectation we have. And we're telling ourselves that there's some kind of really incredible golden standard and that person is gonna save us. And if we just go to that person, then everything will be better or that program or this modality or, and we have to stop, we have to stop thinking this way in order to find the correct solution. But what I'm also hearing you say, and tell me if I'm correct, is that, starting with really trying to figure out what is the underlying issue here, like really getting a proper diagnosis in your hands so then you could be able to navigate it better. But I want I, I do want to push back on that for one second and say that in my experience, I have found that neuropsych evals really tell you back what you kind of told them. So they ask you these questions and they come back and say, yes, you have a child who's ODD, oppositional defiance disorder. Yeah, I know that. That's why I came here. Um, or um, general anxiety disorder. Yeah, I know that's why we're here. I guess my question is, are, are you saying that a neuropsych eval or finding the diagnosis is number one? And then remember that there's no miracle out there, but you're gonna have to find the right fit for this, for your specific loved one that's struggling. And that's gonna take time. And it's not a quick fix. A lot of parents will say to me, my child's been in therapy for six months. I don't see any changes. 
And my reaction is six months is not a long time. I know in our, in our view, it seems like a lot, but therapy can take a long time to actually create change. So yeah, if I can jump actually, you know, just into that one point about six months, yes, it's because it can take a long time to create change. And yes, it might be because of expectations. And for some people, that's the problem. So number one issue is expectations for sure. But if I'm in the wrong type of therapy, because there was a therapist who is really well-respected that I read about in Mishpacha magazine, or because my friend told me about that therapist. So I ran to sign my child up for that therapist without a clinical rationale. That's sometimes also why we don't see change. So go deeper on that. Well, what do you mean? Because, yeah, because so, to go deeper on that. So, like, so that's a good therapist and it was helpful to other people, but your child's specific needs may need a different modality, may need something different. And by finding out what it is exactly that your child struggles with, maybe then you'll find the correcting. It's not about the person as much as it's your child. Exactly. So going back to what I was saying before, if we drop this idea that I'm trying to find the magic cure out there. So if only like if this one therapist is like the best therapist, you know, because again, I'm keep seeing this person's name everywhere. Um, so yeah, so let me, let me link actually both questions together. You're right. Neuropsych testing in a vacuum, anything in a vacuum, not going to help. But when I can put take all these pieces and draw little, little pieces of information from everywhere I can and neuropsych testing. And again, this is, um, you know, part of our, our, our clinical inpatient program, um, really, really focuses on getting a good comprehensive picture. And I have seen people who are cycling in and out of programs that now that we spend 30 days, just getting information while we're getting them regulated and calm and stabilized, but we're not jumping into modalities. We're not trying to do fancy schmancy, um, you know, types of therapies yet. We are first trying to understand what's going on. Neuropsych testing is one tool in our pocket. And the reason is if we look at IQs and we see that there is a differential in scores, and now we see that there's a, a nonverbal learning disability, and maybe that also explains some of why a person did not feel um, they were academically performing or keeping up and that created a, a cycle of, of shame and guilt. Um, if we know that that's part of the story and we are sophisticated enough to not reduce everything to that, but now we just have one piece of that, that's going to explain the origin story of how that person might have gotten into now what is the issue, which could be an opiate addiction. So what's the shaykhus between you know, neuropsych testing and opiate addiction? Well, I will tell you, um, in my humble experience, but what we are seeing day in, day out in our program if someone has starting with a developmental issue that is, makes them socially uncomfortable, an IQ issue, which means that they are not performing as well in the academic sphere, but no one is really recognizing that it's because of something like that. Um, if I have a certain personality structure, um, a certain characteristic, you know, if I'm not really wired, um, you know, a certain way, um, if I don't understand that, we are setting our children up for expectations that they are never going to meet. We are putting them in environments where they are never going to thrive. And then that's going to lead and rack up more and more and more until they maybe do get into a heavy addiction just to get through the day and to find some feeling of happiness in this world that obviously, as we know, does not work. So if we don't dial it back now, yes, that alone, a report of a neuropsych report will do nothing. But if I put that into a picture and I create a trajectory and a roadmap of a plan and residential treatment becomes the first step so I can have a space to just gather the information and calm down and slow this down, figure out what's going on. And then I go to the next step. 
which is oftentimes an outpatient program, an intensive outpatient program for some, they have to live in a sober living or transitional mental health living. So that again, I'm not jumping back too quickly into um, real life, which is something that our program in Onward Living really, really, um, I'm seeing the magic of that. Because when I have a place that now I have all this information on this person clinically, now I can have um, a period of time where they're slowly getting reintegrated back into life, but doing some deeper trauma work or some deeper therapeutic work that is targeted to them. Yeah. And I'm hand-holding the things that were difficult for them, which is why they likely got into the addiction, right? We have um, in our Onward Living, half of our program is about vocation. So we do clinical groups in the morning then everyone is expected to go off and do something productive. And then at night they come home into the, the sober living and they have recovery programming and fellowship and all these different pieces that, you know, it's kind of like multitasking recovery because it's all the little things that over time create um, feelings of productivity, self-autonomy, self-efficacy, connection. But there we get to see what blocks them off. So we have a young man who's really skilled in one thing, but he just time management and productivity and it causes anxiety. We push him to maintain job because we now know why he can't. When we have that neuropsych test in our hand and some people might say, oh, aren't you just boxing them in? No, they are boxed in anyway. That is why for 20 years, they have not been able to function because there is some type of internal or external impediment. If we know about it, if we use our cultural um, focus on, uh, on insight and awareness um, and education, and we apply it to understanding our child's complete uh, clinical picture, now I'm going to set that person up for success by having expectations that are appropriate. Now I'm going to intervene and give him a coach, such as yourself, um, which is why I think, just a side note, your work is incredibly important, um, you know, because if, if I'm realizing that there's something in that person's ability to function productively, if I can then match them up with a person in their real life who can walk them through that, now I'm like literally hand-holding them to the next phase after the residential program. And I keep them in an outpatient program setting that maybe has a mixture of real-life, real-time triggers but also enough clinical support to walk them through it. Then when they get there, onward living, for example, is six months. I'm not saying that every period of outpatient has to be six months. Then we wean them down and all of a sudden, organically, they're now back into their life. But now they can hold a job. Now they have a community of recovery or if it's mental health, they might just have you know a, 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 um, a supportive group that understands them and they feel comfortable and don't have to feel anxious or depressed around. And now I can slip them back in slowly into in a, a real life, but I didn't jolt them into it. Mm. And so the recovery process for mental health um, and addiction, you know, it does follow some similar patterns. It's obviously very different, not only given the presenting issue, but the individual person. So to answer the question you actually asked, we need to figure out what's going on with the person. We have to stop signing up for things that just sounds like they're going to be magic bullets. We have to stop asking every single person that we heard knows anything about treatment. Um, you know, I and and uh, you know, really try to say this is going to be a long haul but it's going to be one that has clear steps that are, that are linear. I'm going to go from one to the next to the next. And linear might mean a relapse. Linear might mean back to a hospital setting. But if I'm, if I'm moving forward based upon my loved one's actual clinical and medical needs, now I have a, a roadmap. Yeah. I hear that. That's, that's very helpful. What would you tell a parent that has a child? What would your recommendation be for a parent that has a child who's, I don't want to say child, but you know, they're not children anymore. They could be 18, 19 and um, is just 
you know, failing to launch, failing to thrive, just living in their basement, you know, even doing pot, which is leads them to not a good place. They end up back in the hospital because they have that that experience again. I'm sure you get a lot of these kind of phone calls. What could a psychosis now from the pot? And now I think the problem is psychosis, but right. Right. Go ahead. Yes. Which makes it harder to figure out sometimes. What would your recommendation be to this parent? Like to me, it seems that this person is stuck. He doesn't want to get the help. He doesn't, he doesn't want to do the work is what it seems. You know, maybe it's because he's so stuck and he knows that he can't, that he believes about himself that he or herself that she can't do it. What would your recommendations be to that parent? a big question it's an important question it's a question that uh comes up um you know on the the multiple calls i receive that are you know each one of them being their own story um i i think you know what i would say is it's really a few different things on a family level i do think it's very 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 important um to try to maintain relationships um, and rapport because you are going to be the one when that loved one is ready for treatment or ready for whatever ends up being recommended clinically, it's going to be because they trust you, especially if they are in your basement. So I think that we can't lose sight while we're doing this frenzied fight or flight, calling everyone we know in the community and researching, you know, programs all day and all night um, and raising money and doing whatever I can. We have to make sure that we are retaining that rapport. Often when I get the call that my son is ready to go to treatment after what maybe was a week of talking, a month of talking, or a year of talking, it's really because that parent or loved one or spouse has been able to maintain um, rapport and trust. And that person knows that they have my best interest in mind. And so when they come into my room at midnight, they knock on their door and they say, okay, mommy, I'm ready to go. It's because there was enough of that uh, of that kind of cocoon of of trust that was built, and so I easier said than done. But this is where I think that for some families, if their loved one is not ready, working with a therapist who specializes in this type of issue of really you know that that family system as we call it, because it is a family system. Once someone in your family unit is struggling, you now each occupy a different role within it, um, and I think that 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 is that is critical. Then we have to know what, what's being recommended. Um, I do think there are organizations, again, I'm going to purposely keep names out because it is not, um, it, it is well beyond the scope of who I am as a person to give anybody um, a golden stamp of approval. But there are organizations out there who do now specialize in hearing what is recommended and what is needed and being able to meaningfully link it up to what works for you practically, insurance, financially, um, all of that. So I think knowing those resources when the time comes for the person to be ready, and I think starting research as early as you can, even if your loved one is not ready, is important. I think the missing piece that I do want the listeners um, to walk away with is that there needs to be a period of time where I understand what my loved one really does need. And whether that is going to a outpatient therapist who can evaluate what's needed and help me figure out, is this some, is this something that does need residential treatment on a clinical level? Is the criteria met for needing to come out of the house? Just like the question we started with, um, because that should be decided by a professional that should not be decided because I'm exhausted and need, and want to send my 14 year old away, or because I heard that rehab um, will help because um, it helped my 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 neighbor. 
So going to someone, um, you know, assuming that there's no crisis. So let me back up for a moment. If my if my loved one is at harm, risk, self-harm, suicidality, an active, you know, manic episode that's lead, that's leading to to aggression and danger and, and you know and, and really would meet criteria for hospitalization. Hatsala 901, that's the call to make. That is not the time and place to talk about everything that I'm talking about, which is slowing it down. So barring an acute dangerous situation, oftentimes we have time. This is not going to go away tomorrow. You do have someone on your hands who needs help. So if, if it doesn't have to be in the hospital, it should not be rushed. And slowing down, making sure you're not fighting with your loved one, you're retaining that rapport, they, they, they're going to trust you, linking up to organizations that know the different programs out there, that vet them, that know which ones are there for the money and which ones are there because they are clinically capable um, and helping you navigate the very complex insurance uh, phase. But the one thing, again, I'm going to say, find a professional who can evaluate what is going on, what is recommended, what level of care. And private practice therapists, I'm very encouraged, are opening up more and more and more. Um, we just did an event um, in Lakewood um, a couple months back where we you know, were there to educate people on higher levels of care. And the turnout was amazing. And the people who really private practice therapists want to learn more about what do I do when my client needs a higher level of care. And that's very encouraging to me for people to recognize, A, they maybe don't know this is a specialty niche area. And just because I'm an amazing therapist doesn't mean I know the rehab landscape. So it is encouraging that people are trying to learn more. But there are outpatient therapists. Again, I'm not going to give names on here. Um, I'm going to encourage everyone to do their own research on that. Um, who can help guide as to what's needed. You know, is this something requiring a certain type of, rec of, of program or another? And then go to these organizations and say, this is what's recommended by my one clinician who I trust. I'm not going to call everyone in the world. I'm going to find that program and I'm going to trust and then I'm going to surrender and then I'm going to dive in. Yeah. Okay, so here's another question. You know, a lot of people have an idea or a vision of what rehab looks like, but can you talk to that a little bit? Tell us a little bit, like, what does a day in rehab actually look like? Give us a little bit of a framework, frame of reference. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite things about rehab um, and why I selfishly enjoy being uh, in that setting at times um, is it really is a microcosm of life, but it's a microcosm of life in a very controlled way. So residents are expected to wake up in the morning, um, do their chores. It's very important, kind of like the muster of Kelm. We really take into account, um, you know, them cleaning and keeping their space cleaned and really recognizing that they're living within a community. And so oftentimes you'll see on the board um, a list of chores, uh, Torah newt, so to speak, that everyone is responsible for. And really they are, um, a lot of their privileges are going to be because of chores. Um, then they go to early morning, usually it's a meditation or something to really start their day in a in a meaningful way, again, kind of mirroring, uh, you know, our tefillah um, and starting our day with gratitude. Oftentimes that's a really big focus in the morning. Um, then clients spend a day in clinical groups, um, usually in a residential level of care. It's from 9.30 to about 3.30. And just like if they're in school um, or in yeshiva, they are going back to back with groups. Some of those groups are process groups where they're all sitting around and really kind of in real time sharing their feelings about themselves, about what's coming up for them in the setting, about um, dynamics that are happening with their peers. Um, and those are some of the most powerful groups where they're not just sitting and listening to lectures, but they're actually getting vulnerable and open and honest um, and really 
kind of analyzing what's happening with them um, because we believe that what's happening with them in the residential setting is happening with them in life. And if they're upset in real life and they feel certain um, bound, you know, uh, obstacles, they're feeling those things there. And so these process groups that happen during the day are a very critical platform for that type of growth. Um, there's also psychoeducation. This is where people are learning about addiction. They're learning about mental health. They're learning about trauma and how it works. Um, and then um, in the evenings, there usually are recovery-oriented meetings or mental health meetings, and they're really getting um, concretized about having a day that's productive, but that wraps up the night, um, you know, with some type of introspective growth. Um, oftentimes, there are activities, and in those activities, of course, they get to just have some fun and, and, and realize that recovery can be enjoyable, but um, oftentimes, good programs will take a look at what's going on. So if a person in a certain activity is showing up as signs of leadership, well, now we're getting to see that person. It's almost like we have a camera on them um, throughout the day. Um, that's also where psychiatric services are happening. Usually, it's about once a week where they will meet with a medical provider. Um, and really the magic though is not what happens in the clinical you know, offices. It's really what happens um, behind closed doors with peers and the concept of fellowship and recovery um, within recovery is the most important thing. And being in a group setting with other people who understand your struggles um, and you could share openly with, that's a very portable skill. And oftentimes I look with my clients to focus on what's portable because when if you're in a if you're in an environment where you're being told what to do all day every day it's easy it's for some people it's easy to live in rehab some people love living in that type of uh, scheduled structured way where they're just you know kind of being guided uh, but we look for portable skills and to me yes they're learning dbt cbt whatever you know therapy is going on but they're also walking away with the ability to form healthy attachments because they've spent a month with other people who are all open and all um, you know, motions on the surface. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about that controlled environment. But like I, like we're talking about, then you got to take that back into your life. That that This period of care cannot and should not be there forever. But we want to set that person up then using this information for, for the next steps. Okay, that's very helpful. Um, I do want to say that I heard from um, different people in rehab that said that they found that, I forget what the term for these people are, but I guess they are people that are kind of overseeing or around to just make sure everything's okay. And they themselves have been in recovery. And um, yes, I forget what the term for that is, but the, the text, behavioral texts. Yeah. I heard um, that one person told me that, that the behavioral tech was the one that convinced them to actually start doing the 12 steps because they shared with them that they had been where you had, like I was here where you are. And that kind of gave them like, wow. So you're clean and doing well and you have a job and and you're doing okay and you did such hard drugs and I for sure can learn from this experience and that and I found that to be amazing the texts some of the most special inspirational people I've seen are those behavioral texts they are the hidden angels um you know of, of the program but that also speaks to the, the the concept of having people around you that are encouraging you and one more thing I just want to say especially because this is family-based Family therapy is often a part of residential. However, back to expectations, that's usually not the time to do heavy duty work. And I know I will speak to mothers who are waiting by their phones for that therapist to give them that update. And they want to know everything that's going on. And just like when their kid is in camp, you know, forgive the, the analogy, but right, it's like that they're they're on eggshells and they want to be involved and they want details and they call the therapist like, what's going on? Is my, is my loved one growing? I think that again, back to everything else I was saying, we have to view the first 30 days as just a period of slowing things down. That's not where good family therapy often occurs. 
and right. just to give give your give your child or your spouse some space just to to start their own process so that when you do family work they can join you as a more whole uh, person um let's try to you know let, let's try to wait a little bit and i think that again that's the kind of the messaging here but um even though family therapy usually happens in rehab it's really not the family therapy that i think is going to take the family back to health I think that the main thing that I'm taking away from our conversation today is this idea of what residential care or what rehab actually looks like, or like a higher level care actually looks like. It's it's changing our expectation. It's actually slowing things down so that we can actually know what's going on, get a better understanding of what is happening here, and then finding the roadmap to move forward and the and the right roadmap. And sometimes that might take, you know, a relapse or a step back or because we're trying to figure it out. It doesn't mean that we're not on the path because sometimes you need to have the you know process of elimination to figure out what is going on. Um, and I think this main idea, this idea that there isn't one person or the golden therapist or psychiatrist that's going to figure this out. It's going to make it all perfect. And I see that time and time again, people will say, well, this psychiatrist who's supposed to be amazing is booked out for a year. But when I get to them, that that's going to be my Mashiach. That's going to be my answer. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think so. Like, I don't think any one person is going to be our, our savior. And, um, no, I want to add to that. Therefore it's usually a, it takes a village, yes. um, you know, general to raise a child and it takes a village to figure out, um, you know, what to do here. And I think that, I think if we, again, we use each person in the right way. So if I use a certain clinician for the evaluation, I use a certain clinician just for the therapy to kind of ground me. Um, I realize that I need to be patient. I might need to go to a residential program for the initial stabilization. Then I need to have outpatient therapy that's going to target the layers of the onion that now that person is ready for because they've had the residential period of care. I think that parents need to be patient and willing and kind of model what people in recovery are learning. And it's easier said than done. But yes, we need to slow down, you know, the quick fixes. Um, and I think that we need to be willing to, to grow with our child, you know, and realizing that, th that there is not one answer. Um, and I think it, by looking for one answer, we end up sabotaging, you know, the, the answers that will help my loved one over time. Okay. okay. One final question. This is something I ask almost all of my guests on my podcast. What is one thing that you thought you knew really well about, you know, high level of care or higher level of care or residential treatment that you've changed your mind about after years of experience? I love that question. I think that I, I used to think that as long as somebody was there, that it would work. I thought that as long as we were good therapists and as long as we did our job as staff, and as long as the person was sitting there, that it would follow a linear path similar to how I think families are feeling. And I think what I learned is that, 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 that this is messy, this is complex, that a person can be very motivated to be in treatment one day, but still struggle with that ambivalence. Um, we can be good therapists, but we can miss something. And I think that if we are all patient, and I had to learn to be patient because I am somebody that wants to see every single person leave and, and flourish. And every single person have a success story, such as your son's success story, that is, making itself known and inspiring. And I think that learning that 
people get there in their own way and in their own time and being okay with that and realizing that this is a process and is a journey. Um, just like most things are journeys in this world, but not all of them get to be as exposed. Um, I think I've had to learn that the same way that I'm asking um, parents, um, you know, to, to join me in learning the same. I love that. Very insightful. Well, I'm going to give people your um, contact information if somebody wants to reach out to set up a um, consultation or figure out what, you know, where they can get some guidance. Not that you are the, you know, the person that's going to fix everything for them, but perhaps you can help guide them to the right destination of where they can get some more clarity for their child or their loved one. Um, that will be in the show notes as well. And again, I want to thank you for your time and for being a person that's so uh, caring and loving and being there for people. I know how many hours you've given to people that I've sent to you. And I, I just want to say on behalf of all of them, thank you so much for doing that for our communities. Thank you. It's my privilege. Thank you for what you're doing and creating this space um, in the community and taking your story and your family's story and doing exactly what we hope for, for everyone who goes through anything painful. Yeah. Okay. Thanks again.